You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. Man, I look forward to it. Oh, looks like we're getting started. Bob, it's all yours. It's all yours, man. I'm 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 muting. <laughs> well, good morning, everybody. Good to see you here again this morning. Um, and uh, nice to have people coming and tuning in from living rooms, bedrooms, uh, other people's houses, studios. Uh, fun to get to see into our lives a little bit here, um, especially in the small group as we're meeting here on Zoom. Um, but welcome. I'm so glad that you're here. Um, this morning, we are uh, going to be uh, talking about Martin Luther and uh, his kind of contribution to the Reformation and uh, where we are. Aaron's going to talk more about that. And so in keeping with that theme, uh, I wanted to share uh, some words this morning from a, um, a Presbyterian pastor out of uh, the Toronto area um, who I really like, um, Reverend Dawn Hutchings. Uh, I've shared some things from her before, but um, she writes a little bit about this uh, and listened to a sermon of hers and wanted to share just a piece of that as um, we're getting started. Um, but before I do that, would you join me in a prayer as we get things started here? God of hope, God of promise and restoration, God who meets us in the spaces that we are and draws us near to you. As we come together remotely for this service from places all across the country here, um, God, let this be a space for us to remember the places that we've come from, the progress and the changes that have been made in our own lives, um, the movement in your church, God, let us never be content. Let us always be moving forward towards growth and change and hope and justice and peace. Let us be advocates to move your church in this direction. Let us find ways of coming together, not just here in this community, but with people in the church at large with our sisters and brothers of different faiths. Wherever our background, God, draw us closer together. Make us instruments of your holiness and peace. Amen. Um, I wanted to share just two things before I, um, before I read this piece from uh, Reverend Hutchings. Um, first is that there is a long tradition that holds that at Martin Luther's trial for his heresies, that he concluded his statements by saying, here I stand, I can do no other. And so that's a refrain through this piece. Um, and so I just wanted you to know the context of where that comes from. Um, the other is, uh, there is another um, long-standing tradition in the church of a Latin phrase called uh, semper reformanda. Um, and it is this idea of always reforming. That's literally what it means in English, always reforming. And it's this, this idea uh, that the church is not ever a place that has arrived, that we're always moving forward towards what God is doing, moving, changing, and shaping. And so that's understood in a lot of different ways, um, but that is uh, an important uh, aspect and refrain of this as well. Um, so I'll read this brief uh, piece here, and then together I'm going to put in the chat uh, a unison prayer that she used as a benediction um, for 
uh, this piece, but that we'll pray together. Um, and so uh, when we do that, feel free to unmute yourself if, you're, if you'd like and if you're comfortable, and I'll put that in the chat now um, so that we have it. So here are these words from Reverend Don Hutchings. Here I stand for I can do no other. Staring out at the abyss of unknowing, these words from Martin Luther comfort me. When he stood accused of heresy, a charge that put his very life in jeopardy, and the powers that be demanded that he recant his teachings, Martin Luther knew that all of his questions threatened the very church that he loved. And he had the courage to say, here I stand, I can do no other. The church survived, indeed the church thrived. The reality is that like all human institutions, there is much that is good about the church and much that is bad. Over the years, the church has continued to nurture millions even it has, as it has failed to nurture millions. The truth is that the church is not the issue. It never has been and it never will be. For as we stare into the abyss of the unknowing, what matters is not the church, but rather our being. Who we are and how we are, that's what matters. Who am I? What am I? Who will I be? What will I be? Where am I going? How will I be? What is the source of my being? These are the questions upon which the, our very being stands or falls. These are the questions which drive our very, very being and inform our way of being and of relating to each other as beings. For here we stand, we can do no other. Here we stand, wondering what it means to be. Here we stand, longing to know the source of our being. Here we stand, seeking to live in harmony with other beings. Here we stand, for we can do no other. Isn't it marvelous? Isn't it magnificent? Isn't it wonderful, exciting, terrifying, amazing? We stand on the shoulders of all those who have gone before us. But the church is not the point. It never has been and it never will be. The church at its best has been a tool, an aid, a mechanism to assist us, sometimes a crutch to lean on or a light to guide us or simply a safe place in which to rest our weary heads. The church at its best will be a place where we can stand together, engage together, seek together, ask together, argue together, build together, change together, weep together, wonder together, resolve together, love together, live together, be together, as we learn to relate to the source of our being and love as we have been loved. Here we stand, for we can do no other. Thanks be to God. Semper referanda, always reforming, always changing, always growing, nurturing, and sustaining always loving and being. Thanks be to God. Will you join me in this unison prayer together? Here we stand, for we can do no other. Semper reformanda, always reforming, always changing, always growing, nurturing, and sustaining, always loving and being. Thanks be to God, our lover, beloved, and love itself. Amen. Thanks, Bob. Um, it's always fun when we work Latin into a service. <laughs> Good old, there's nothing quite that uh, reminds, of, reminds us of the Great Reformation than <laughs> all of our little Latin phrases. <clears throat> um, well, as uh, Aaron mentioned earlier uh, and did so earlier, if you haven't had a chance uh, to grab something um, that you'll use for communion, please feel free to do so now. Um, each week we take communion here. We use something 
near uh, by uh, what we have in our own homes or, or areas um, that we often use different things, um, although sometimes there's overlapping elements uh, that that each of us enjoys. Um, feel free if you'd like to put what you're using in the chat. That's been a nice little tradition of our virtual community. Um, but uh, yeah, feel free to grab something. <clears throat> This morning, I'm going to read a prayer for us uh, as we take communion. That's um, actually, I'll hold that one for now. Um, I, I will say a prayer for us um, about communion. How we do communion here, uh, depending on, on where you've come from in terms of traditions, uh, whether you come from a church background or not, what kind of church background you come from, um, can look like a lot of different things. Um, and here we believe that it is the intentional act of becoming and reminding ourselves that we already are one body. Um, that the people of God, although we look different and um, believe different things and are in different places, especially now, um, in this moment, we are interconnected. In this moment, we are one body, some of us hands, some of us feet, um, as, the, as the scripture goes, um, but all contributing to the whole. Um, and so uh, we remember that on the night Jesus was betrayed, um, he gathered his disciples in the upper room um, and broke bread and said, when you do this, do so in remembrance of me, my body broken for you. And then after the meal, likewise, he took the cup, poured it out and said, this is the new covenant. Um, each time you drink, um, do so in remembrance of me. And it's that little tradition that we partake in um, that reminds us of our unique calling, our uh, calling that we share both with uh, millions of people across the world who um, take part in communion, um, but also the uniqueness of our individuality, each of us on the screen, each of us in our community, the gifts that we bring, the passions that we bring. And so at the same time, we celebrate our individualism, we celebrate our collectiveness. Um, so with that, I invite you as we do so each time in remembrance of this calling, sorry for the uh, single noise, I should have got that out first. I invite you, um, siblings, friends, neighbors, to take the bread and the cup um, and remember our calling to bring justice and peace to this world. Amen. All right, thanks, Max. Uh, just a couple announcements. Um, Holy Happy Hour was moved. So now it's going to be this Wednesday, still at We're Pouring in Glendale, and we'll be meeting outside, and it'll be at 8.30. And then next Sunday, we will be having brunch at Aaron and Emily's. If you feel inclined, please bring a dish to pass, but it's totally not required. We'd rather just see you guys. Um, and that's it. I will pass it over to Aaron. And just one brief clarification there with Holy Happy Hour, moved the time a little bit. So we're gonna be meeting at six o'clock um, at We're Pouring in Glendale. Um, so you can jot that down or- So, uh, so six o'clock, not 6.30. Correct. Got it. Okay, well, we'll change- I'll be, there. I'll be there starting at six o'clock. It's a okay, cool. happy hour. You guys can come whenever you want. <laughs> so, <laughs> you don't yeah, need so, to be there at any, any assigned time, but I'll be there starting at six. Okay, very cool. Because the actual happy hour, I think, is usually like between like five and like six thirty in most restaurants. So this is good. We're actually usually yeah, we do the happy hour at like eight thirty at night. Now, now this is actually going to be at happy hour time. So that's good. Yeah, it's agreeable. And if not, show up later. That's great. All right, look forward to very seeing. Cool. You. All right, thanks everybody. So, prayer requests, words of Thanksgiving. If you have something you want to share, um, you can unmute or put it in the chat. Um, and we'll do our best to um, pray about that. Uh, but does anybody have anything they want to want to share? Hey, Aaron, I have one. Um, not to get too crazy political, but I just feel like I'm really stressed out about 
the forces pulling out of Afghanistan and just like mm -hmm. what that means for the people who are left behind for women because the Taliban has been really moving into the city and just yeah. I don't know for safety for just the innocent people who live there yeah yeah thanks Angie let's let's pray loving God we lift up the problems in Afghanistan and those who are most vulnerable there as Angie mentioned the women and we pray for a kind of global consciousness of what's taking place there and obviously we don't know what the solutions are and how you know the history of that country is so broken and so much foreign involvement both from our nation and others but we we just pray for the vulnerable there um, and those uh, who are already suffering unspeakable things at the hands of uh, the Taliban. And we pray for um, just their lives and we pray for uh, just a, a global consciousness might be moved and that um, the powers and the principalities and powers involved might, um, might, might be changed and that relief might be brought to the suffering of that, of that nation. Um, in Jesus name. Amen. Yeah, thanks, Angie. Somebody else? Yeah. I, I do. I have one. Um, well, it's two. I went back to work in person. My students haven't started yet, but it is. Um, I've been very anxious about like COVID, but also leaving my dog. Um, and then the second one is I left my dog at work at home and I came home on Friday and she was limping and she actually broke her toe. I have no idea how. And she has to have her toe amputated um, tomorrow. Whoa. So she's, I had to leave her at the vet Saturday, Sunday. So she's alone. She's so anxious at the vet. And I'm like, I guess I have to monitor her because she's old and kidneys and like all that. So she's having her toe amputated on Monday, which is the best in solution and best recovery. Actually, it's not that serious for dogs, but um, I just am very anxious for her and like how I'm going to care for her and work um, and all of that. So. Yeah, let's pray. We pray for Desiree in this moment of stress and anxiety involved with her dear little dog Blanche and all that's involved with school and going back uh, amidst the pandemic. And we pray for her, her well-being holistically, body, spirit, soul, mind. Um, be with her at this time. May she feel the presence of our love and care for her. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Yeah, sure does. Anybody else today? With that, Max, I will hand it over to you. Thanks, Aaron. Um, we haven't done this in a while, but today I'm gonna do a little reading. Um, it's similar to Lectio Divina. For those of you familiar with that, often, um, um, literally a divine reading. Um, often a piece of scripture is used or a liturgy um, or prayer or uh, along those lines is used and the reading is repeated um, a couple times and each time I just invite you to listen. Um, the first time just to familiarize yourself with the words, the second time um, to see if any particular phrases um, or words um, particularly jump out at you. And then the third time to meditate on those uh, phrases or words. Uh, I'm not uh, intending to be too, too dark here, um, but this reading is called The Longest Night, um, in parentheses, for the earth. Um, and it is a prayer about um, the earth um, and our society and um, you know, if I'm, I'm assuming most of you read and heard about the news in this last week about the climate report that was put out and just a reminder of how devastating um, we are as humans, as societies, um, as countries um, to the environment and to the earth. Um, and just as we have talked about, right, that we are a collective body, um, we share this earth um, and we share this world um, with, with those who um, agree with us and those who disagree with us, those who we call friends, those who we might call enemies. 
um, and yet we are all um, here um, and we all are called uh, to create a better life, create a better world. Um, so with that, uh, we'll, we'll pray this together. Again, I'll read it through a couple times, um, three times total. The first time, just feel free to listen, um, then feel free to pick out a word or phrase and then meditate on it. So with that, um, I invite you for this morning to hear the longest night for the earth. On this longest night, listen to the wailing of the wild. Hold vigil with the grief of the earth. Remember, from soil humanity was made and to soil humanity will return. Sources of life forgotten and betrayed. Relationships ruptured by violent ideologies. White supremacy's destruction more reliable than the seasons it disrupts. Power plants grow where poverty does too. Bodies exposed to toxins, clean air is a luxury. Life choked with, from water by pipelines and runoff. Consumerism and colonization kindle for fires of destruction. Slaughterhouses cut off all respect for creaturely life. Corpor corporate profits rise global temperatures too. How weary the land. The night only fades into more night. The sun can't get out of bed. Keep silent all spiritual platitudes. For too long there has been no earth in your heavens. What good is disembodied love to the lakes, to the squirrels, to the plants that feed and nourish you? No, just come and sit and hear the body of God weeping. On this longest night, listen to the wailing of the wild. Hold vigil with the grief of the earth. Remember from soil humanity was made and to soil humanity will return. Sources of life forgotten and betrayed, relationships ruptured by violent ideologies, white supremacy's destruction more reliable than the seasons it disrupts. Power plants grow where poverty does too. Bodies exposed to toxins, clean air is a luxury. Life choked from water by pipelines and runoff. Consumerism and colonization kindle for fires of destruction. Slaughterhouses cut off all respect for creaturely life. Corporate profits rise, global temperatures too. How weary the land. The night only fades into more night. The sun can't get out of bed. Keep silent all spiritual platitudes. For too long there has been no earth in your heavens. What good is disembodied love to the lakes, to the squirrels, to the plants that feed and nourish you? No, just come and sit and hear the body of God weeping. <clears throat> I'll read it one more time. On this longest night, listen to the wailing of the wild. Hold vigil with the grief of the earth. Remember, from soil, humanity was made, and to soil, humanity will return. Sources of life forgotten and betrayed, relationships ruptured by violent ideologies, white supremacy's destruction more reliable than the seasons it disrupts. Power plants grow where poverty does too. Bodies exposed to toxins, clean air is a luxury. Life choked from water by pipelines and runoff, consumerism and colonization kindle for fires of destruction. Slaughterhouses cut off all respect for creaturely life. Corporate profits rise, global temperatures too. How weary the land. The night only fades into more night. The sun can't get out of bed. Keep silent all spiritual platitudes for too long. There has been no earth in your heavens. What good is disembodied love to the lakes, 
to the squirrels, to the plants that feed and nourish you. No, just come and sit and hear the body of God weeping. Amen. Thanks, Max. So today we're going to do a little bit of church history here. As previously mentioned, we're going to be discussing some uh, Martin Luther, that famous 16th century Catholic priest that, that's credited with starting the Protestant Reformation. And a lot of what I'm sharing today comes from a book I'm reading right now from uh, John Caputo, Cross and Cosmos. It's fabulous. And also a friend of mine, uh, Josh DeKaiser, who's a PhD and a, a Luther scholar, actually, from Holland. So we, I, I'm, I'm contending today that we post-evangelicals, as we're known, uh, we progressive deconstructed Christians actually owe Luther a lot, probably more than we know. And this is a good time to do such a conversation as this because it was exactly 500 years ago this summer, 1521, the year 1521, the summer of 1521 to be exact, that Luther was excommunicated from the church and he had to run and hide in a castle in what is now Germany in order to escape arrest and probable execution. His big crime was that he challenged the church's authority and power by challenging um, its core teachings and theology. It's hard for us to understand today, I think, how powerful the medieval church actually was, but it really knew no bounds. It didn't just hold religious power, but political and economic and even military power too. The, the papacy, meaning the uh, the Pope, uh, the powers of, you know, the Pope, the Vatican, so to speak, had had like basically all power, even military power to wage war and to kill. Um, so its power was kind of total. The church ran, the medieval church ran the known world back then. And Luther, among a few others, believed this to be antithetical to the cross and the gospel. The, the, the big idea that informed Luther's critique and confrontation of the church was what he called his Theologia Crucis. Latin for theology of the cross. And it was his, his theology of the cross was a reaction to a response to what he called the theologia gloria or the theology of glory, which was the worldview, the hermeneutic, you would say, uh, which is the, the method of interpreting scripture uh, that the church had. The, the, the church operated under what Luther called a theology of glory. Um, and had so for centuries. And it's what they drew all their power and authority from. The church's theology of glory was based on this idea that the church, and specifically the Pope, was God's representative on earth. And therefore, just as all things came under the sovereignty and the lordship of Jesus Christ, all things therefore came under the sovereignty and lordship of the church, at least until Christ returned. This gave the church total power over human affairs, religious, political, economic, etc. The church actually didn't distinguish between those categories like we do today. It was all considered church business and all matters of spiritual import. Now, it's important to understand that this theology of glory was really rooted not just in the church's theology of or readings, reading of scripture. It wasn't just rooted in that, but in this sophisticated and very complex merger of those things with Neoplatonic and Aristotelian philosophy. <laughs> we won't go into all of that uh, because it's really tedious and boring. Simply put, the medieval church believed that ancient Greek philosophy could be merged with scripture and theology and thereby give us access to the mind of God. And to the and to ultimate truth and to the underlying nature of reality. Think of this being like a merger between science, philosophy, and theology, but without any of the hang-ups or tension between those fields today. The thinking back then was that all these fields complemented each other and gave the church direct knowledge of God and access to ultimate truth and the underlying nature of reality. And, and it's from that vantage point that the church could justify all their power and authority 
over everything, over all human affairs. Absolute knowledge meant absolute power. This was the theology of glory that Luther was critiquing and deconstructing, we would say. So, so Luther came along and said, no, this is all wrong. The cross shows us that God is anything other than human cognition could come up with. All claims to ultimate knowledge and power are destabilized by the cross, he argued. The cross is not a symbol of power, but a symbol of powerlessness. It's not a symbol of glory, but a symbol of defeat. The cross is not a symbol of logic and, uh, and, and knowledge, but absurdity. It's not a symbol of direct knowledge of God, but it's a symbol of the mystery, the, the utter unknowability of God, Luther argued. Now, he still believed that God still saves and saves by faith in the cross. But his point was that we cannot understand how that works in any way. It is beyond us. It's beyond the reach of feeble human understanding, even that of the popes, he argued. And therefore, we cannot claim any authority over it or construct a system of power and authority on top of the cross. It doesn't work, he argued. The church cannot claim any power or authority over people's souls, period. That was the real radical idea of the theology of the cross, that, that Luther wielded like a hammer against the church's theology of glory. So by making these arguments, Luther was saying that the church's theology of glory was really just a thinly veiled power grab. It was He was saying that the church was engaging in fraud, actually. That's really what he was saying. That the church is essentially engaging in, in fraud and is a charlatan uh, and has essentially rejected the gospel in the way of the cross. And, you know, this is how Luther confronted and deconstructed the medieval church. And one can understand why that landed him in a lot of hot water and got him excommunicated 500 years ago this summer. Uh, a scholar and friend of mine uh, that I mentioned earlier, Josh DeKaiser, puts it this way. Luther's deconstruction was, given the religious imagination of the time, Luther's deconstruction was no less thorough than what we mean by deconstruction today. Indeed, when Luther's new ideas got traction, they did not only form a huge threat for the religious establishment, but rather the entire conglomerate of state and church was ruptured. The power of the German emperor was diminished and the Roman Catholic church no longer ruled over Europe, end quote. This is really the size and the scope of what Luther's theology of the cross did. It's hard to do it justice in a short talk like this one, but it's important for us to have a basic understanding of it because in a way, we're standing on Luther's shoulders today. Uh, to be clear, I don't mean that, that Luther was a progressive Christian like us. He wasn't, and, and that term didn't even exist back then, right? Despite his, his deep disagreements with the church and the fact that he's still called it out on its arrogance, hypocrisy, lies, and corruption. Despite all this, he was still quite orthodox uh, and, and very conservative compared to us today. So, so please don't come away from this thinking that you know, Luther was a progressive Christian by today's standards, but in a way he laid the foundation for all future deconstructions, including our own. That's what's important. That's what I really want us to get out of this today, that Luther kind of laid the foundation for all future deconstructions, including our own. A good argument can be made that Luther's work, uh, along with the work of other reformers, because he wasn't the only one operating at that time, the only one challenging the church at that time, but he was perhaps the most prominent. One can make the argument that his theology of the cross led directly to the scientific revolution less than a century later. You know, once, once the foundation of the medieval church was destabilized and ruptured, a power vacuum formed that was filled by New understandings of reality. Enter Copernicus and Kepler, Galileo, and then later on Newton and, and others. Keep in mind also that this led to a breakup of the church and state and, and the various monarchies that, of medieval Europe who depended upon the church and, and the Pope to ordain and legitimize their own power. So, so the Reformation led to you know, political revolts. It led to armed revolts against the aristocracies and the various monarchies that ruled over medieval Europe. These, these power struggles would in turn lead to the American and the French revolutions and the birth of liberal democracy and, and republics and the notion of, of, of innate human 
rights and, and the rights of individuals. You know, but, but one could argue all of that began with Luther's theology of the cross in large part. It, it kind of began with that. And his deconstruction of the church's theology of glory, this, this medieval worldview. So I don't think I'm overstating things or being hyperbolic when I say that Luther's ideas changed the world and, and helped lay the foundation for what would become modernity. And remember, this was happening during the Renaissance, a, a period when all of Europe was going through incredible cultural changes and innovations in the arts and science and technology and, and philosophy. It makes sense that religion and the church would be affected by all of that too. And, and yet Luther's work was in some ways singular and uniquely world-changing. Some, some of the greatest modern Western philosophers like Hegel, Feuerbach, Nietzsche, Kierkegaard, Heidegger, all of them, all of them credit Luther actually, uh, and his ideas as being the impetus of some of their most important ideas. Even though some of them were atheists, they, they believe Luther was kind of the first modern philosopher in some ways. Yeah. So, so Luther was not just debating some tedious theological points that only mattered to a handful of you know, priests and bishops. He wasn't just arguing over some abstract church doctrines. At the end of the day, he was calling into question the very foundations of reality that the medieval world was built on. This is why some credit Luther as being the first modern thinker. And it all goes back to his theology of the cross. Think of what Luther did as being like you know, pushing the first domino over, which led to a cascade of all these other events that could not have, that, that nobody could have anticipated. This is always how deconstruction works, right? Once you pull the first thread, the whole garment begins to unravel as one belief or one idea is always predicated upon another. And really the seeds of Luther's work, the seeds of, the, of his theologia crucis, the theology of the cross, this goes, these seeds were actually sown by Paul 1,500 years earlier. The theology of the cross was really Paul's theology from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where Paul says, I, the Lord, will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the, of the discerning I will thwart. Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For Jews demand signs and Greeks desire wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, for God's foolishness revealed in the cross is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength, end quote. This was actually one of Luther's favorite passages, because Paul was saying that the cross was, was antithetical to anything human cognition could come up with. It was, it was antithetical to all human conceptions of wisdom, knowledge, and power, especially religious power. The cross signifies the crucifixion of both reason and revelation, or signs and wisdom, as Paul put it. The, the cross signifies the crucifixion of all that. And in that way, it was a completely new paradigm of thinking and being. And so just like Luther in his day, Paul, in the first century, wielded the cross against the power structures of the first century, namely uh, the religious powers. You know, he, used it, he used it to set his fellow Jews free from the Mosaic law. And, and he used it to bring Jews and Gentiles together under the banner of love, which, is, which of course is the banner of Christ. And similarly, 1,500 years later, Luther used the same theology of the cross to challenge the medieval church's authority and to set people free from its oppression and its corruption. The theology of the cross, I would argue, is still doing this today. In my opinion, evangelicalism is the latest iteration uh, the latest reincarnation of the, the medieval church, you could say, and this theology of, of glory. This is seen in the evangelical obsession with biblical authority, right belief, theological orthodoxy, and defining who's saved and, and who's not. It shows up also in the evangelical church's merger with far-right politics and the desire to impose their religion on the culture and to dominate the culture in the name of God. It's, it's seen also in this idea, this evangelical idea, that theology is really like the queen of the sciences and is a kind of science that in many ways trumps 
all other kinds of science. The theology of glory is alive and well today in evangelicalism, and yet the theology of the cross is alive and well too, and I think we're the ones wielding it. We are uh, we, we deconstructed post-evangelical Christians, I think, are really the heirs of this theology of the cross. We've, we've certainly taken things to a place uh, neither Paul nor Luther could have imagined. <laughs> I'm sure they'd be unsettled with some of our thinking. But this, too, is the way of the cross, to be clear. Paul and Luther don't get to decide or define the boundaries of the cross because in a way, the cross has no boundaries. The cross is not something you can domesticate and control. This was actually their point. But in the same way that Paul could, ne could never have imagined Luther's situation, I don't think either of them could have imagined ours. The point is, every moment in history is unique. And therefore, the way the cross ruptures history is always unique to the time and place in which it occurs. My hope in showing all this to you today is that you'll feel as I do, a deep connection with the, the past and the roots of Christianity. My hope is that you'll see how, how what we call deconstruction today. This is not, I, my, my hope is that you'll see that this is not the antithesis of Christianity or just this new postmodern fad that will go away, but rather this is part of the original essence of the faith. The seeds of deconstruction were sown into it at its inception because it is a religion about a crucified God. God deconstructs himself in Christ, or you could say God self-deconstructs in Christ, or auto-deconstructs in Christ. Think of the Lord's Supper as symbolic of this self-deconstructing God. This is part of why we observe the Lord's Supper here at Central every week. In the Lord's Supper, Christ's body is deconstructed. It is, it is dismembered and scattered among us as bread and wine. And um, Jesus, remember, Jesus said, you know, take, eat. This is my body broken for you. This is my body deconstructed for you. And so we do. We take it. We consume it. We eat it so that we might remember or reconstruct God, Christ within ourselves. This is Christianity. It's, it's a religion that deconstructs God for the sake of saying that God now lives in us. How profound is that? It's a religion that deconstructs God for the sake of liberating us from all false conceptions of God and the institutions that use God to oppress and harm us and others. This has always been the story of Christianity from Jesus to Paul to Luther and now to us. My friend, uh, my friend Josh, the Luther scholar I mentioned at the beginning, puts it this way, and I'll, I'll finish today with this and then open it up for conversation. The crucified Christ is all the revelation from God there is. He is all we get to know from God. He is all the God will ever know in this life. He is all the God that matters. There is no God other than this crucified God, this God in the margins who speaks truth to power and calls us to life in the world as it really is, end quote. All right, so there is my talk today on Luther and his Theologia Crucis, his Theology of the Cross. What, what thoughts does that spark for you, uh, if any? Um, just wanna open it up now. Any questions, comments? I'll go ahead and start. Um, yeah. It's really interesting because uh, Kit and I were talking about this um, a couple of weeks ago because I didn't know that Martin Luther actually started the Lutheran church. Which oh, really? Is, yeah. Um, you know, which is how my husband grew up was in the ELCA Lutheran church. And, um, and so we had a big conversation about it a couple of weeks ago. So I just thought it was interesting that that's what you were, you were talking about this morning. Um, I've often told you that he doesn't have any religious baggage <laughs> yeah. like most of us do. Yeah. Um, so I also thought that was really interesting. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I just, I liked your talk today. Oh, thanks, May. Yeah. Yeah. That is, that is interesting. And in a way, I guess I'm saying, you know, to, you know, 
wield that theology of the cross today to practice deconstruction, I guess, or to undergo it kind of means we're all sort of Lutherans <laughs> in, a, in a way, not, not that there's anything endemic about deconstruction that is just in the Lutheran church, but there is something very Luther-like is what I'm saying, uh, Lutheran in that regard about it. Uh, yeah, no, and and I, I hope that this gives us a, a deeper sense of connection because I think going through deconstruction and going through this sense of exile out of the church, this kind of post-evangelical experience can feel very alienating and it can feel like you're very disconnected from from your from basically like the church and Christianity. I'm trying to show that we're not. We're actually being more true to the heart of it. At least that's how I feel. And, I, and I'm curious to see if you guys kind of echo that and feel that when you think about church history as I presented it. Or you just feel, do you just feel totally in exile and, you know, feeling like you're disconnected from the church? I would imagine not since you're here, but I don't know. I think I can answer that. Um, can you repeat that again? I think I know what I want to say, but just. Yeah, well, I, you know, I was just saying, you know, do you feel like you're in exile from the church? Um, you know, going through this kind of deconstruction post-evangelical oh. experience. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I was going to say, I will say that it is, it can be difficult, especially moving. So I move, so moving churches and finding a place like going to visit churches is like a really different kind of experience. Um, now that I'm in a different kind of place with regards to my relationship to the church and the things that happen. So, um, you know, it's like, there it's very, it's interesting. I don't know how else to put it, but like there are places I've gone, like I went with a friend and it was just like very Jesus-y in a way that I was not used to coming from the church that I was at. Um, but then I went to a place that was like almost too like loose and it's like, it was, um, you know, a spiritual center and not a church. And then oh, yeah. and like some of a lot of their language that was like, it was too far. And then so it was like coming back and the disconnect. So I think that that, um, like what you're talking about, the alienation part is just kind of like, it's finding where you fit and finding places that seem to align where it's not too far this way, not too far that way, um, kind of works. And it, it, it can take a long time. So I've been here yeah. four years and I just found your church. So, um, you know, so it can take a long time. So that's all I have to say. Thanks. Well, and thank you for sharing all that, Akila. Yeah, and and thanks for being here, and uh, and and finding us. That's 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 really encouraging. Thank you. Yeah, um, yeah. Other other thoughts about your journey and how you feel as far as are do you feel connected to Christianity now? Uh, do you feel still kind of in exile and or lost or alienated? You know. Hi, um, my name is Emily. I raised my hand, but um, hey, Emily, sorry, I didn't see your hand raised. Sorry, no worries at all. Um, so I realized that <laughs> we kind of found your church on a whim, and we go to another church, and we just so happened to be moving my brother yesterday and had this morning off. So we thought, why don't we check this church out? Um, really wasn't planning on saying anything, but uh, your question sort of sparks a little bit in our journey, I guess, um, to answer your question of feeling exiled, I would say yes for me in just Christianity period, because I grew up in sort of a cultish, uh, born again, Christian, uh, religion where, you know, you were going to burn in hell for most things that you did that really were just now looking back were a form of control. Yeah. Um, so I think that you're I really like the deconstruction because I feel like as a Christian that 
um, works in uh, realistic terms of what I think Jesus was created to represent in a world that that we now live in, which seems really chaotic. I think um, my parents are in that, what you spoke of, the opposite of the deconstruction. And so I live a lot in surrounded by people who um, that's how they feel. They feel that, you know, being gay is wrong. And, you know, the, the, what, what happened last year with George Floyd and like literally everything that has happened is like against their grain of thought that they were brought up in. And I feel like it's just a generational thing that hopefully I would like my parents to understand, but I'm not sure that they will because they are very, their, their thought processes are very different. So I would say, yes, I do feel very alienated as, you know, I'm in a same sex marriage. So uh, that also alienates me from a lot of Christianity and it's hard to find churches because like, um, Akila, I, we went on a journey as well and we visited many churches and some that would just, it was like the silent thing. It was like the don't ask, don't tell situation. So right. they would only speak on straight marriages and say husband and wife, uh, solely. And, you know, we, we also felt alienated there, but I didn't know that open and affirming churches existed because I came from such a closed minded area. So anyway, just, I thought I'd share, didn't, like I said, didn't really think I <laughs> would. And I'm sorry, our picture's off. Cause we really just were like, Oh, let's just log on. So we are not really <laughs> presentable, but Thanks for having us. Thanks for listening. And um, really appreciated the talk and learning about Martin Luther. Thank you so much for unmuting today, your first Sunday here and, and having the courage to do that. And just know that you are fully loved and accepted here, both of you, as, as you are fully affirmed uh, in your marriage and your relationship and in your relationship with Christ, 100%. No, no none of that half-ass, you know, you're welcome, but you're yeah. not really affirmed, you know. Um, because we believe that. we well, absolutely, it needs to be said, and it needs to be said repeatedly in this culture. But this for us, this for us in this community, um, is the way of Christ, is the way of the cross, and um, it, it, it's a way we center ourselves still on that story, still in those in those in those Christian values or traditions, so to speak, but in a way that is not oppressive but uh, liberative, I guess, liberating. And, uh, and so, you know, but that's, again, that's, that's sort of a, a tightrope in some ways for us, because when, when you're, when you're essentially a trauma survivor, as so many of us are, and I hear, I hear the trauma of what you've been through, Emily, and it's, it, so many of us share that story here and, and elsewhere in other similar, you know, kinds of church settings. Yeah. It's so hard, I think, to feel like you're still connected to this thing called the Christianity and the church and, and the faith. But yes. I just want to encourage everybody and say that it is possible. And I think we're, we're doing that. And I think we're doing that. But again, you know, I'm, I'm you, know, uh, you know, one of the leaders of this community. And so maybe I have a, I, I have a bit of a bias there. But um, I also grew up, you know, kind of like you did in the sense in a very hyper fundamentalist, Pentecostal, born again, evangelical church in Chicago. And, and those, you know, uh, very, very um, sheltered life until I left home in my mid twenties. I mean, just, I, you know, in a way we're all kind of, you know, not all of our stories are the same. I think mine's a little more on the extreme end, maybe yours is too, but I think a lot of us, most of us here come from at least a very conservative evangelical background and are recovering. We say recovering fundamentalists here. Um, but my, my, my hope is that this, this place is, is, not just an oasis, but a, but a place that helps us reconnect with our Christian roots and lay claim to that. Again, if we want, if, if we don't, if you don't, that's totally fine too. We have people here that say, you know, I'm not really comfortable calling myself a Christian anymore. That's, that's okay, because Jesus wasn't really about forming a religion. It's about a way of living in the world out of the values of love and justice. So that's just to kind of center us today on, on those themes. But yeah. thank you. Thank you, Emily. Did you want to add anything more? Of course. No, I just, I agree with all that you said. Thank you again for affirming. And it is really nice still to be recognized. Yes. You know, so. Well, you're more than welcome. 
Does anybody else have something they want to add or, or any other questions or comments today? Well, I wanted to say, first of all, I certainly resonate with the, um, the idea of reformation in faith, because like you mentioned, you know, I can, I'll speak only for myself, but I know that a lot of people in this community have similar backgrounds to some degree, but um, you know, I, I know for uh, a lot of the leadership here, especially um, having come through a, such a, a change in faith kind of forces an opening to like continued reformation, right? Like I've come so far in my faith from the places that I used to be and the things that I'm now ashamed were part of my history and my belief in theology. Um, and so there's an aspect where that the idea of reformation is really redemptive, not just because we change and get, you know, the church changes and gets better and gets things right as, you know, as, as history moves on, but that like, you know, I feel very personally changed by my experience in the church in, in a healthy aspect. Um, and it's what drives me to continue to be involved in, Christian community specifically, because if I can go through this change and growth myself, then I have to believe that other people are capable of making that same journey. Um, so reformation is really hopeful. I know it can be really scary. And for a long time, it was really scary for me. But um, yeah, that's, that's at least a huge part of my identity. Um, there is one other thing I wanted to make sure we talked about in the context of uh, Martin Luther. Um, and I think it's, it reminds me, first of all, that we always have to be careful how we lift up our heroes. And that's something that's really, really important here. Because one of the things I know, <clears throat> historically, we talk a lot about the first half of Luther's life in ministry, and not so much about the last 20 years. Um, because while Luther is this great reformer, um, who was instrumental in a lot of change in the church, um, he is also maybe the most anti-Semitic theologian yep. that has been published in the history of the church. I mean, like in atrocious ways, things that he said about Jews and wrote and published um, are, are just awful. I mean, he wrote a whole book called uh, On the Jews and Their Lies. Mm -hmm. and, and so it's, I think it's an important thing to make sure we, we address because you know, we don't have these infallible heroes. Like we have a history of people who are immensely broken. And um, because we talk about uh, uh, intellectual honesty so much here in this church, you know, I, I can appreciate some of the things Luther did, but to be honest, he's somebody who is really difficult for me to like lift up and kind of get behind because, you know, of, uh, I mean, particularly his views on Jews, uh, among other things, but, you know, he's a theologian that was directly cited as an influence by Adolf Hitler. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah. yeah. Led yeah, yeah. to the policies of the Third Reich, which is, you know, among the greatest atrocities in human history. Yeah, so he was, I don't even know what to do with all that, but I just feel like to some extent it needs to be spoken so that the conversation yeah. can be a little larger. Yeah, he certainly represented larger sentiments, anti-Semitic sentiments of, of the day, specifically coming out of medieval Germany. Um, but yeah, thank you, Bob. We always have to temper, uh, you know, we, we never talk about Luther's, we never talk about Luther. I don't want anyone to think, you know, who's relatively new. Does this church talk about Luther a lot? No, we don't. <laughs> this, is, this is actually, I think, the, the first actual talk I've dedicated to kind of the history of Martin Luther and the Reformation. We've touched on it in the past, but it's never like a focus. So Luther is not like the hero of this church. Just want to be really clear about that. Uh, but he is an important uh, person to consider uh, for obvious reasons. I won't go back into it. I won't re-preach re my talk, but thank you, Bob, for, for saying that. That absolutely needs to be said. Thank you. Other, other comments today? Other questions?
Well, I want to thank everybody for being here, especially newcomers. Thank you for joining us. Um, we are going to conclude. And uh, for those board members that are that are present, we'll take a five-minute break and come back for our board meeting on this channel. But otherwise, uh, we you are dismissed. Go in peace, friends and family. Much love to all of you. Stay safe out there. And uh, hope to see you again next week.